Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. All right. Welcome to today's show. So funny story, everybody. You know, we all have have those days and apparently I had one. This is going to be the funniest introduction ever. So today's guest is Dr. Susan Rich, who I have been waiting months to interview her and just talk to her about so many things, including her um, nonprofit organization, just the work that she's done, her books, so many wonderful things. And a few weeks ago, Dr. Rich and I had this wonderful, amazing conversation and we were just, it was spirited and we were just talking and, and just having a great time. And then after we were done and I hit end, I realized I never recorded the episode. <laughs> so I just, you know, was totally transparent with Dr. Rich. And I said, you know, I totally apologize. Apparently, I guess that's initiation into podcasting is, is you have to do that at least once. And she graciously agreed to be back on the show. So th- that was an exclusive edition of, of our interview. It was so exclusive that only Dr. Rich and I were able to hear it. <laughs> so now this is the episode that everybody gets to hear. So Dr. Susan Rich, after that funny, long introduction, Welcome back to FASD Hope. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I, it was a pleasure the first time around, and I'm sure that the second time will be equally a, pre- a pleasure. So thank you so much, Natalie, for inviting me. I feel very honored and grateful. Oh, thank you. And again, I appreciate your time because I know how busy you are and I know all of the wonderful projects that you have. So before we talk about all of your work and just, you know, the amazing work you're, you're doing with Seven Generation and, and, and all of the endeavors that, that you are working on, I'd like to hear some of your, your story about what got you into the field of FASD. Well, thank you so much because I, um, I interviewed with Jeff Noble a while back and he's lovely like you. Um, he was, you know, I was really touched to, to get asked. Um, and we, we said, oh, we're going to do the origin story because he always does an origin story with people. And um, we never got around to that. He said we kept going down rabbit holes, which I'm known for. So in 1992, I was working for a pharmaceutical company and I happened to, um, because my undergrad was in microbiology, very science oriented. I happened to be up at Cornell working on a clinical trial and a young postdoc there uh, told me about the broken cord. He had read the book, The Broken Cord, and he was whitewater Apache. He had done all of his PhD thesis looking at very tiny doses of alcohol on developing um, rat pups. So the late stage of human pregnancy is equivalent to just the pre-birth period in rats because they're born, you know, a little bit premature. 
and he would dose the um, the mother rat, the mother rats with very tiny doses of alcohol, and even down to very minimal amounts, it would change the rat pups development of their nervous system at the the neuromuscular junction. And he studied neuromuscular junctions. Um, and so what he found was uh, compelling, but as a young pharmaceutical researcher, I really wasn't that interested in the research, you know, itself. It just wasn't very compelling to me. And I think part of the reason was that, you know, I was a young woman, you know, recently out of undergrad, you know, by a couple of years and, you know, socially I would drink. And so I, hearing this about, oh, what happens in rat, you know, pups didn't really fascinate me, but um, because of our common heritage, uh, both of us being Native American, um, he suggested that I read The Broken Cord. And um, so he lent me his copy and I took it on this plane ride back to uh, North Carolina from New York City and I couldn't put it down. I read it at the, you know, every place that I stopped on the way and um, meaning in the car. So instead of texting while driving, I was reading while driving, you know, and, um, and over the next, you know, day or so I finished the book and I wrote a letter to the author of the book, uh, Michael Doris, who actually, while I was uh, later in medical school, he, he committed suicide. I don't know if you know that story, but I was already in medical school when, when that happened. So, um, but having said that, I um, left my job in pharmaceutical research and I went back to school to do a master of public health and health policy because of learning about this issue. Um, I started going to powwows and festivals on the weekends talking about how early in pregnancy birth defects happen. I took March of Dimes materials. I started writing grants and developing programs um, for women in recovery. And I left my, after getting my master of public health and health policy, I went to a rural area to do a lot of work there um, developing programs. One of them, a 24 unit transitional housing facility for women in recovery and their dependent children called Grace Court. And that program, you live down in North Carolina, not far from actually where Lumberton is, where Grace Court was established. They, they've actually replicated it eight times now. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. You know, I'm very, you know, grateful that I had the opportunity to be a part of that coming to fruition. Um, so having said that, that's how I got started in this. And I, after, you know, working a couple of years in that rural area, I realized that, you know, this issue needs a national voice and an MPH isn't enough. Really, I needed an MD so that I could speak to very large audiences of physicians and have them listen. Because what I learned was that pediatricians have known about this for a long time. And when I asked the local pediatrician who um, was also Native American, he's Lumbee, I asked him, why, you know, <laughs> have people not recognized this if it's such a huge problem? And he said, well, he said, you know, pediatricians would take a look at the kid and they'd say, wow, that's a funny looking kid. 
And they would literally write in the charts of the kids FLK. And I've written about this in my book. And it's really what made me go to medical school, to be honest, is after, you know, like hearing this, that they call these little kids FLK or FLKs, funny looking kid. And, you know, this is like widely done and it was widely done in the PD pediatric world, right? And the pediatric dysmorphologists who study the kids, instead of going upstream where the salmon are spawning and saying, you know, why is it that this is happening? Let's try to put systems in place. I think many of them have actually, Dr. Ken Jones, you know, who's a notable, you know, person. I mean, he's gone upstream and really put together a whole network out in California of teratology information. Um, but, you know, there, there are plenty of people like ones I confronted in North Carolina or came in contact with while I was there that at, at the developmental evaluation centers, the DECs, I don't know if you're familiar with those, but those are for little kids. Like I would, I would talk to these, you know, people when I was a medical student, I'd say, okay, well, how many kids with FASD do you see? Well, we really don't, we don't see that many, you know, and it's not because they didn't see that many. It's because they didn't know they were seeing that many. I, I did um, talks at these DECs, you know, in North Carolina and other places and started, you know, talking uh, and doing projects in other Native American communities. That was along the way in public health school and then medical school. Um, and really realizing that this is an endemic and epidemic problem is endemic in certain times of our society and in certain cultures, and it's epidemic at other times. And right now with the whole coronavirus, my understanding is, you know, the rates of alcohol use in women went up again, but what you have to appreciate, Natalie, is back in let's see, I went to medical school in 96. In, in um, 96, there was a publication that came out, um, 96 or 97, actually, I guess it was April 97, the publication came out that said that alcohol use rates, moderate to heavy use went up by 400% in pregnant women from 91 to 95. And the, the report came out in 97, right before I went to work for Good Morning America as a summer intern so they could learn how to do documentaries. And so I did that um, that summer and I took that one newspaper article that my aunt actually sent me about the rates going up and the CDC reports. Um, and we did, we did a segment on the healthy woman where I was a, a summer intern uh, with the producer for the healthy woman, Susan Wagner, um, at that time. And it was the first time on national TV, anybody said, you know, if you're sexually active and using alcohol, you need to contracept and you need to plan your pregnancies carefully if you're using alcohol. Um, so Dr. Nancy Snyderman and, um, Joan London were the two talents on that healthy woman. But, um, and later that summer, actually Joan London uh, left Good Morning America, like she stepped down. So I always wondered, you know, if, 
anyway, I just think about big alcohol and what an influence it has on our society. Exactly. So. And, you know, that comes up um, when I um, guest on, I guest on a lot of podcasts hosted by people who are big in the sober community, you know, and, and, and the sober movement. And this often comes up and I, I know you'll appreciate this, but we need to normalize sobriety. I, we don't, as a society, we do not normalize sobriety. It's, it's always, why aren't you drinking rather than awesome, you know, sobriety, woohoo. You know, we know, you know, <laughs> we know all of the benefits of having an alcohol-free lifestyle, you know, including not having the risk of having a child with NFASD, you know, that's one of the many benefits. And it really is when you promote normalizing sobriety, you're really promoting ending that systemic health crisis of FASD, of prenatal alcohol exposure. What are, what are your thoughts about that? About sobriety as a lifestyle. And, yeah. you know, I think that our society is so inebriated that even the concept is foreign. You know, I, I often tweet about the oxymorons of our, um, you don't have Twitter, I know that you told me, but um, the oxymoron. So the CDC comes out and says, if you want to reduce your risk of coronavirus, of COVID-19, this is like early on in the pandemic, don't use alcohol. And they're also coming out to uh, people of color and saying, look, it, it lowers your immunity, don't use alcohol. But what I found in this last many months of this pandemic is that they were saying one thing and doing another. So they were allowing one of the only advertisers on television was big alcohol during the whole pandemic, if you looked at it. And a majority of the ads were directed at people of color. I don't know if you noticed that yeah. much, but and all even of these ads featuring yeah. uh, African-American people and, and Latinas. Mm -hmm. And so then I asked a colleague, I said, why do you think that is that the CDC is saying that? And yet big alcohol is advertising uh, to people of color. And they said, well, you know, I guess it relates. This is such a stupid answer. Um, I guess it relates to the Black Lives Matter movement and wanting to put more people of color on television. I'm like, no, these ads had actually started pre-pandemic, like advertising to people of color. The other thing is they advertise to women, all of these sexy girly drinks, I call them, that are now available in a bottle rather than having to go to, to a bar to get it. And just the whole thing that all the cities were doing during the pandemic I think the idea of saying that, you know, people can't go without alcohol, like <laughs> the pandemic has been proof of that because yeah. all of these different establishments were figuring out ways of getting their local cities to buy into the idea of drinking an open container in a yes. park. And the other thing was um, very recently they've started saying, oh, if you uh, come down to this place, usually a bar or, you know, an establishment like that. 
um, you can get a COVID vaccine and we'll give you a free shot and a beer, and a, beer. a beer and a shot. Yep, I saw so that. they get a beer and then they get a shot of alcohol with their shot in the arm. And I'm saying, you know, that look, if the CDC is saying, if you drink, why are you promoting that? It, yeah. that it, uh, it lowers your immunity. Why are you promoting use of alcohol? And why do we need to entice people to come to stuff? Like, I, I don't mean to say this about, you know, nonprofits, but many nonprofits, even those serving children in foster care, of whom many have FASD, a lot of those nonprofits have social hours and their, their dinner is all about alcohol. And then they, they raise money by having baskets of alcohol available to bid on, right? Why is it that, you know, our society is so tied up in alcohol? I just, and maybe you say I'm naive, but I don't believe I'm naive. I think that it's, there's a lot of, of um, the taxes that our government gets. And, you know, even looking at like why in a community of color, you have more liquor stores available than you do grocery stores selling food. And I know we talked about this a little bit last time, but when you look at, at the minority health disparity and health disparity in general between a high income community and a low income community, what you start to see is disproportionate numbers of like food deserts and this idea of, you know, healthy food being more accessible in say in our Washington DC area in wards three and five, which is Northwest DC, predominantly Caucasian, whereas ward seven and eight, which is below the Anacostia River, again, boundaries being drawn, you know, post um, reconstruction, you know, 95% of that population is African-American. And so making these decisions you know, where they put liquor stores, they put way more liquor stores, they have three grocery stores between the two of them. Why is our society so bent on making alcohol way more accessible to certain people than they do healthy food, you know? And I think all of these questions really, you know, I think posing these questions to governments and city planners and people who are making the decisions. Whereas, yes, our culture has gotten inebriated. It's it's an alcoholized culture. So if we are able to extract ourselves from that, even, even as a human being like myself, I, I don't drink alcohol. I haven't drank for many, many years because of ethical reasons, right? And I, I have a close colleague of mine who I've known since my days in public health school, he's, he's also a physician with a master of public health. And he said, well, Susan, if you're a teetotaler, people are going to say, oh, she's just like that. She's kind of a fanatic. She's a maverick. You know, she's a zealot. He uses the Z word, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm all of that. So like, why would I be offended if they call me what I know I am? Like, why, why is that a problem? Um, so he convinced me, like when we we're out to dinner at one point, oh, just take a little sip of the alcohol. So I took a sip to, you know, appease him. But um, 
you know, it's not like I think it's, it's poison and I'm going to drop dead, but like studies are showing that it causes all kinds of reproductive health problems, reproductive cancers, cancers in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I feel like, you know, on one hand, our society is alcoholized and they're, because of that, they're not listening to some of these public health warnings. And even though the CDC might be shouting it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm hoping at some point during what, you know, during our talk that we can talk a little bit about um, the book and yes. kind of how we, how our, our, there's a lot in my book about the history. Let's go ahead and talk about your book. Your answer is exactly on point with what I was thinking and, and what the hope I see in these, especially a lot of younger, you know, people, and I say younger, you know, like people in their thirties and and even in their twenties who are questioning, well, why do I need to drink? So it's, it's really promising to me to see the sober movement being on podcasts, not just for people who are in their forties and fifties, but the sober movement is being embraced more and more by people in their twenties and thirties. And that gives me a lot of hope because those are people who are going to get married and have families. And those are the people that if they understand the message that don't drink, even if you're thinking about getting pregnant or, you know, even if you're just of childbearing age, because we know that 51% of pregnancies are unplanned. Again, I really hope that with FASD hope we can be a platform to say, let's normalize sobriety. So, you know, sobriety is, is healthy and it shouldn't be considered, you know, an alternative lifestyle it's the lifestyle. When you introduce alcohol, you know, just like when you introduce tobacco or any other thing, you're introducing agents that your body was not really meant to consume, you know? So I'm just, I'm really happy you're talking about this. So we're airing this episode in June and June is FASD authors month. We're highlighting authors of different FASD books and, and, and biographies and, and whatnot. And your book is amazing. It is really mind changing. It's one of those books out there that just makes you think and not just makes you think, but just it's, it's really like a a smack in the face to say, we need to wake up. Let's talk about the story behind the book and let's share with our audience what you want them to know about your book and why it's so important. Well, I mean, the, the title of the book, first of all, is really misleading. And, um, I did that intentionally believe it or not. And the, the cover graphic is very compelling, but also um, in some ways pr- provocative, right? So you have a baby immersed in a glass of beer with the umbilical cord wrapped around and inserted in the bottle of beer. And it was done by this really wonderful artist, um, Angela uh, Milky, who had um herself, uh, Angela Millay, um, out of Washington. I think she lives in another state now, but, um, Washington state. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty graphic, you know, picture if you see it, you know, the baby, but it don't really notice. You just say, Oh, it's something about babies. And then the silent epidemic of child psychiatrist journey beyond death row. Like, why would I put death row on a book that I believe should give hope to people. Well, that's because I'm trying to say, I'm tired of going to death row, seeing these individuals. There is a different way 
to approach this problem. And I'm not the only one who's been to death row. There are plenty of other people. I, I write about a colleague um, of mine who you know, has seen over like 70, maybe 80 of these individuals on death row. There's only about 3,500 people. It is a lot of people, but on death row in our country. But, you know, the more you dig, the more you see that there are, you know, a number of these individuals there. And um, so why did I write a, a book like this? Well, the book, it's to me supposed to be compelling people to see that there's a way forward in terms of policy, in terms of program development, in terms of psychiatric care, mental health care. There's a way forward to help these individuals when they're younger, not to have these problems develop, which we consider chronic and persistent mental illness, right? And getting in trouble with the law. So with kids in my practice, I typically will say, look, I'm about prevention. You know, in addition to my medical degree, I have a master of public health. I, I want to help you get to your adulthood without getting in trouble with the law, without getting anybody pregnant or getting pregnant, without having alcohol, tobacco, other substance use, without getting sexually traumatized, sex trafficked, or sexually traumatizing or sex trafficking somebody else. And graduating high school, right? So even if it means by the time you're 21, finishing with a certificate, that's okay. You know, but if we can do those five things, that will be awesome because you will statistically be beating the odds because 80% of, you know, individuals we know have some degree of these issues by the time that they're age 18. So having said that, I wrote the book um, to inspire hope in people. And I think people have a hard time getting past or they have had a hard time getting past the fact that I write about death row, right? And because it's a very hard thing to read about. Um, but if you look, you know, the last, the second half of the book is mostly about like how to prevent the problem and it's, it's more, you know, policy recommendations and then, you know, how, how to help families and how to help individuals through, um, you know, your, your caregivers, your parents, your uh, physicians, you know, putting systems in place that are going to help and looking at a four domain model of treatment that includes social communication neurocognitive issues, sensory and motor, and then mood dysregulation, autonomic arousal, and all four of those things, understanding that all four of those things contribute to adaptive functions. Even though our adaptive functions, you know, a psychiatrist or a psychologist would measure a person's adaptive functions on conceptual, practical, and social uh, skills, right? Um, and that, that is for those people who are intellectually disabled, but for individuals who are not intellectually disabled, they can still have very low adaptive functions, which we know that a majority of people who have FASD do not have intellectual disability, but they do have developmental disability as defined by its uh, 
problem that occurred before they were born and it affects their adaptive functions. So that, that's the two things that I think a lot of parents miss when they say, oh, I want to get my child diagnosed with an FASD, but if I do that, there's no disability benefit. And I try, you know, in, in my book, I, I, I explain that, hey, for a person that does not have intellectual disability, such as those individuals with FASD, 85% of them don't have intellectual disability, they still can qualify for developmental disability. And the reason is because this is a, it's, it's a uh, mental condition that occurred that's separate and apart from mental illness occurred prior to birth and that affects their adaptive functions. Almost all of the individuals who have an FASD of any kind have adaptive functioning deficits. And that's what causes them not to be able to launch into young adulthood. So um, if you start when they're young, like we do with individuals who have autism spectrum or intellectual disability, if you start when they're young, teaching them life skills, social skills, conceptual skills, then by the time they get to be 18, they're going to be a little bit further ahead. So that's why I feel like the parents that do homeschooling with these kids do a better job because they are able to implement some of these, um, you know, the things that the children wouldn't necessarily be able to get if they were in school six to eight hours a day, plus the half an hour either way on the bus, right? Parents who homeschool are able to introduce this. And I know you've homeschooled. So, I, and I'm not saying that just because of that. I'm, I'm telling you that- I'm I, smiling. I, yeah, I, I've had people that come to me and they'll say, you know, I had this one woman who they had moved here to the DC area from Tennessee or somewhere. And she had a daughter who she had adopted and had homeschooled for a number of years. But when they moved here, she put her in a public school and the daughter tanked. She did terribly. And the only way she could homeschool her was to go back to where she uh, they had lived before in Tennessee because she she had extended family there. Right. Um, and it was helpful to have that network, you know, and uh so even though her husband was working here, she decided to go back there and, you know, just have him come, uh, you know, intermittently because she wanted her daughter to get the full benefit of homeschooling. Now, there are some parents who homeschool and they socially isolate their children. I don't find that that's the, the norm. I find that parents who have children that they're homeschooling, typically they find outlets like these co-ops and mm -hmm. these other outlets that their children do and their smaller group activities. There's also yeah. quite a bit of, of a movement, Dr. Rich, with mm -hmm. um, homeschoolers of, of teens, young adults with special needs so that yes. we, we, you know, we had done that where our son was in 
a smaller group and he would benefit from getting together, you know, say at a local coffee house with a few, you know, with a few other peers, homeschooled peers. And I think that's one of the many benefits of homeschooling. And, and I, I'm, we're, we're going to redirect this conversation back, but I'm just, I'm very thankful you're bringing this up because there is, especially since the pandemic, there have been a lot more parents thinking about homeschooling and, and, and what not pandemic schooling, not, you know, um, virtual schooling at home, but homeschooling, because again, we can focus on, and we know that with our kids that, you know, there's a difference between their chronological age and their developmental stage. So if we can homeschool them and meet them at the developmental stage and, and, you know, support the needs and, focus on the strengths, but yet provide that real life education, like you're talking about, like they need, you know, things like cooking, basic things and support that. Yes, they may not launch completely independently, but they may be able to launch interdependently with, with support, or maybe they launch a little later, but they launch. So I'm so thankful you're bringing this up because that really is one of the benefits of, of homeschooling, especially as young adults and teens get older and and you start thinking about what's happening down the road. So can you tell me one of the biggest takeaways you want parents to know about your book since we're focusing on books this month? Yeah, I think that just understanding that the book has a whole, you know, section for parents and professionals to be able to help these individuals and that the way forward is going to be aligning with the neurodiverse community. So whereas autism spectrum, I think a lot of parents of kids who have an FASD, they they see the autism spectrum community and what they've done to open up, you know, everyone's awareness about autism. You know, oftentimes, parents of kids with an FASD, they, they will say, well, you know, I kind of feel like a redheaded stepchild when it comes to, you know, this issue being the redheaded stepchild. But in fact, there is more in common. And I've written about this in my book. I've co-authored a paper in an international book on autism and Asperger's about the clinical link between FASD and autism or Asperger's. And just understanding that these are all neurodevelopmental conditions. If you, you know, get down to it, it's a little like, okay, um, fragile X can uh, be related to, for some children and young adults, um, autism spectrum. There, there are plenty of other conditions, you know, viliocardiofacial syndrome, also no, known as DeGeorge's. Um, it's a, a de- deletion of a certain portion, you know, of a chromosome. Um, you know, all, all kinds of genetic issues that are linked can be linked to autism spectrum. Well, prenatal alcohol exposure, because it causes so much um, so many changes in the brain wiring and, you know, the, the damage that's associated with the alcohol use, depending on the timing and the frequency of the, the dose and the duration, all of that, um, it can cause very similar problems in the brain and the child can look like they have autism spectrum. They can be diagnosed with 
autism spectrum. They could be diagnosed with intellectual disability or ADHD or a mood disorder. Um, so just understanding that piece from the book that this is a neurodevelopmental condition. It needs to be treated by a psychiatrist or a um, healthcare provider, a, a doctor who understands that it is a neurodevelopmental condition and everybody around the child, like scaffolding the child with those supportive programs throughout their development, including as they get older, you know, speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists, like there are all these people that are really critical early on in their development, but also as they begin to transition, what are some of the other approaches that can be used? Occupational therapists are great with that. You know, um, how do you, how do you dampen down the sensory environment for these individuals as they transition into the workplace? How do you create um, enough interest in the job, right? To keep their momentum and their, their motivation for getting up in the morning and going to work. So um, that it's not just pushing grocery carts at giant, but it's something that they really enjoy. Um, I know you mentioned about your son doing carpentry. I have a young man in my practice who I just had this conversation with him the other day. Um, look, developmentally, you're, you're like a precocious 15-year-old. You're 19. I understand that. But if you could say to yourself, look, I'm a really smart 15-year-old and you know, you could look at it either way. You could say chronologically, I'm 19. I'm not launching yet. I'm still, you know, kind of in an extended homeschool curriculum at home, having to listen to my parents or, you know, look, I'm 15. I'm not yet ready to launch. And so if you look at it from a developmental point of view, that's where they're at. But they very often look at the number. So it's a lot of my therapy and my work with young people is about, you know, them connecting with their strengths and really, and at the same time that they're um, embracing their strengths and finding meaning and purpose through their strengths, meaning and purpose in life, that's going to give them that leg up to find uh, the vocation that will be like their passion rather than just like a job. Um, in addition to that, being able to help them understand that they also have challenges and be willing to accept the accommodations as a lifelong IEP, so to speak, individualized education plan. So an individualized education plan for life. We're always learning. We're always developing. We're always growing and their brains will continue developing a little bit longer than other brains because, you know, they have more growth to do. And at the same time, they will need lifelong, you know, some degree of supports for, for many of them, not all of them. And, you know, there are some that go on to college and with the right educational supports, you know, they go on and or they find a career path in art you know, study art or music or something that doesn't require a ton of conceptual skills and they do great or like veterinary assistant or something that, you know, really allows them to use their love of animals or of nature. Anyway, so that's kind of the gist of the book. What it is about is about 
hope for families to help families really understand the neurodevelopmental side of this problem to help the individual cope better with life. And that is one of the many reasons why I wanted you on FASD Hope, because that's really what we're all about is we recognize the realities that come with this. And we know you've, you've mentioned the statistics. However, if we can get in there, like you said, and if we can support, if we can meet them where they're at, where, where we can, you know, find their, help them find their strengths. And I love how you phrase that about, you know, you're really intelligent, you're really smart 15 year old, you know, and it, it, it focuses on the strength of the accommodation versus the deficit of the chronological age. It's better to, I I actually, I'm like kind of having an aha moment. If we can, as parents embrace that, okay, we're focusing on the strengths of their developmental age rather than the negative of their chronological age. If, If we can shift that, then I think that you can help your child, loved one that has an FASD shift the focus off of, okay, negative deficit, negative deficit. That's all I'm hearing versus, okay, this is what I'm really good at. And this is what I really shine at. And this is, you know, if, if you support me, we, we, you know, we can do this together. So I love that. And we will be posting the link for Dr. Rich's book on our uh, program notes for today's episode, which again, we're, we're in June, we're talking about authors in FASD. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.